Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, Twitter has decided to pull all political ads. Will this make a dent? Conservative Peter McKay is walking back his blistering comments about Andrew Scheer not being able to score on an empty net in the last election. Does that mean Peter McKay is in? And the Quebec government is moving forward with its values test on future newcomers. Will it make any difference when it comes to immigration? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Twitter has decided that all political ads will uh, be removed from the platform. They've decided to opt out of this game and will not be on their platform globally. To talk more about all of this, Simon Kiss is with us, a professor of journalism leadership, Wilfrid Laurier University, and with us now. Simon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. First of all, tell us what this means, and then we'll talk about how significant it is. What exactly are they proposing here? I think what they're proposing simply is that they're not going to be allowing the purchase of ads for political purposes um, uh, by political parties or those with a political message. So I'm not entirely sure how that's going to be implemented, um, but that's uh, that's what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, when, you know, at the end of the day, this is going to spell a revenue shortfall. They, they say that the political ads that are posted are, are a, a minimal mar- a part of social media's uh, profit margin and such. Uh, are they hoping, do you think, that others follow suit? Um, to, be, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Uh, I, I, we know Twitter is um, it's a curious social media company. It uh, hasn't uh, gone public yet. There's been a lot of talk of what's going to happen when it is public, and it's profitability. There's a lot of questions about how profitable it really is, and so um, decisions like this are kind of curious, um, especially, so what I think is really going on is um, they are trying to fend off regulation uh, by particularly the United States government um, in the lead-up to the, the 2020 presidential election. So um, there's obviously been a lot of talk about the manipulation of social media platforms by um, by particularly foreign governments, and so there's been pressure to kind of regulate to tell the um, the kind of the big tech companies. And um, I think in order to kind of fend that off, they are adopting voluntarily certain measures to uh, to sort of convince Congress. Um, that, that they're ahead of the curve and that regulation is not necessary. So in other words, if we make it look like we're doing something, at least they might leave us alone. I think that's that's what's really going on here, yeah. Uh, is it really political ads that have the influence as opposed to groups that sort of mirror themselves as organizations and such? Um, yeah, I don't think we really know if there is a, a difference in um, the, the persuasive capacity of, of ads versus... Um, versus kind of just messages. Um, my read of it is that uh, it's very hard to persuade people to take different attitudes. Um, more likely that what happens is that these kinds of ads sort of reinforce existing attitudes. Um, but I, th- I think there's kind of a there's kind of a suspicion of ads that I don't think is really warranted. Um, you know, persuasion is in and of itself not a bad thing. And the problem with purchasing uh the problem with banning kind of commercial and purchased ads is that you're going to create uh extra incentives for groups that want to be engaged and persuade uh you're going to incentivize them to 
basically kind of act out even more dramatically because that's the only way that they're going to to get their message across uh, without ads. So in a weird way, it's going to actually kind of encourage um, even more extreme and more negative behavior. So do you think such policies should be in place? Uh, well, I don't like this one. Um, I'm more of a fan of Facebook's uh, 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 policy, uh, which was actually required by law in Canada. Uh, there was uh, legislation passed prior to the last federal election that required um, uh, at least Facebook, I don't know about other companies, uh, to maintain records of who uh, who purchased, of, of any uh, third parties um, and political parties that purchased ads, so you know exactly who is purchasing what, and you, there's a record of it that you could see. Um, I'm, I'm more of a fan of that than uh, kind of an outright ban. Uh, as you said, if uh, if this or these such ads are banned from Twitter, I mean, there's so many other social media sites. Will they just not go somewhere else? Uh, I think that's also a possibility. Um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I definitely think that's a possibility. Um, and uh, I think more importantly is it's just actually going to kind of um, kind of turn Twitter Twitter into more of a polarized swamp than it actually already is. So it's actually going to make um, the problem in some ways worse than it already is. Uh, you talked about the difference between Facebook and Twitter and how they're handling this. Compare the two. How are they doing it differently? Well, so uh, Twitter is um, banning these ads and uh, Facebook is uh, allowing ads, but they're maintaining a record of who has purchased uh, ads, pl- uh, political parties and, uh, and third parties that have uh, purchased ads. And um, in addition, uh, they are investing money in um, monitoring and fact-checking software to provide information to users about the credibility of uh, sources. So is there any re- what do you think the reasoning is other than to avoid future regulation? Those regulations would also be governing Facebook as well. So why the reaction, why is this company reacting this way and others not? Well, so I think the other thing that's going on is there's just kind of a there's, there's kind of a naivete that a lot of tech bros uh, display, and I think uh, Jack Dorsey is kind of demonstrating this. There's this belief, and it's naive that, uh, and it's kind of built into the entire idea of social media platforms itself. But there's this belief that if you just connect people uh, and let them engage and uh, and talk to each other that this will solve all our problems and that um, the real problem that we face is that we have this inability to, to talk to each other. And uh, it's a very kind of, a kind of tech bro kind of sentiment that you get from wealthy uh, white male computer programmers. And um, the, the evidence that we're gathering as social media has become more and more prominent is that uh, as people talk to each other more and more, uh, the arguments get more fierce and more divisive, and uh, you divide uh, even deeper into camps online. Um, and so, um, you know, in Jack Dorsey's tweet, where he he announced the this this Twitter ban, you know, he said, um, and I, you know, the wording was something like, "We believe that uh, you know political messages should be uh, earned and not bought." Right. Yeah. And 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 that is. A kind of a naive kind of approach because it, it sort of assumes that when you engage in politics, you're going to be 
uh, by definition, you're going to sort of act in good faith. You're going to treat the other side with respect. You're going to have a commitment to kind of honesty and fact-based argument. And, you know, none of that is true. When people want to earn Twitter reach without the option of buying ads, you're going to get um, vicious attacks, uh, lies, deception, outrageous stunts, um, because outrageous uh, stunts and outrage are, are going to be what, what attract people. Um, honestly, sometimes uh, the, uh, the most sober and, and thoughtful messages can kind of come from purchased ads. Hmm. So um, your thought is the more dialogue, the better. Just monitor this. Be aware of it. Be, well, think, be aware who it where and and who it's coming from. I, I think transparency is the key in providing people the ability and uh, other journalists and and members of the media the opportunity and and governments uh, the opportunity to know who is purchasing what space on which platform. Would the same so, apply to hate speech? Because it almost seems like the same sort of issue, different topic. You know, the, uh, you the fine line between yeah, yeah, the fine line between what we can say, what we can't say, what we can advertise, what we can advertise. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, I think hate speech laws apply to uh, ads as as much as they do to kind yeah. of uh, spoken speech. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, and Twitter is actually known for having um, uh, cracked down on hate speech more than others. Um, so, oh, yes, the same would apply to, to hate speech, yes. How regulated should the Internet be? How much should we be governing all this? Yeah, I don't think it's a simple question where you can say kind of, you know, more or less. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it really Does it govern like itself, or do we need to set these guidelines? Do normal laws like hate speech apply here? Yeah, I definitely think hate speech laws should apply online. I think it can be... Um, I, I think, you know, kind of harassment laws should apply online. I mean, there's cases of, of you know, really brutal mobs that can develop online that can um, uh, drift offline into the real world and, and cause people real harm. Um, so I, I don't think we can really let it be a, a kind of an absolute wild west. And honestly, I think, I think, I think that naivete that, uh, people who developed the internet kind of started with is, is proving to be not workable, right? That uh, you can't just let it be the Wild West and assume that then everything will be okay. Um, uh, to, to be honest, if I had to put it, if I had to put it bluntly uh, myself, I would probably say that sort of in terms of the online world, I actually fear other people more than I fear the government. So fundamentally, hmm. um, I'm, I'm a little more nervous of kind of the way that mobs can, uh, can form and, and target minorities and individuals more than I fear the negative effects of, say, government uh, regulation. So in some cases, more dialogue isn't necessarily better, but how do we balance that? Yeah, well, it, it depends. It just depends on the dialogue. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it depends on the dialogue. It depends on how it's conducted. It depends on whether there's respect for the other person. Um, yeah. If it wasn't for Donald Trump, would we still be talking about Twitter? Because uh, he's almost be, that, because uh, he's met. He he certainly has used this platform to to his benefit, uh, and some may say downfall. Um, but that being said, uh, at one point, people questioned whether this platform was relevant. Is, has, he, has he breathed new light into this, into this platform? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, um, I mean, Don, Donald Trump definitely is the, the Twitter champion, and he's really figured out the, the key to make that platform kind of work for him. Um, 
but rem- you know, remember, I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, a lot of people point to Trump as a negative of Twitter, but you know, and does that exactly. have anything to do? Does, does does his engagement of Twitter and the audience does that have anything to do with this decision? Well, think about it. He doesn't purchase ads. This is actually the point. Yeah, he doesn't purchase ads on Twitter. He uses Twitter as is, and he is an example of Jack Dorsey's image of earning reach without purchasing it. That is Donald yeah. Trump. So if if that's your image of earning reach, well, I really don't think that banning ads is going to move us towards a, a better dialogue. In fact, I think there's your problem. Banning ads is going to leave Twitter open to the Donald Trumps. Are we, as an audience, as a user, are we more aware of this now? I mean, social media, of course, in, in, you know, in terms of history, it's relatively new, but most people know their way around the block by now, don't they? Or, don't, or, or do they? Sure, sure. I think most people are savvy users. Well, they're certainly savvy users, but are they smart enough to know what's real and what's not, or what's embellished? I, I, I think the average person does okay, but I, I think um, the average person does okay, Um, but I I think you you can't, uh, you can't let governments off the hook here. I think governments have to they play a role in kind of laying some ground rules. The governments and and the the social media companies uh, have to kind of be engaged in regulation of some kind. Uh, do you think we will see other, uh, as we and we touched on this earlier, other social media follow suit? It, will will this work if one does it as opposed to the rest? I don't think you're going to see social media go the step of banning ads. Most of it lives off of advertising revenue. Yeah. I think this particular measure is going to be particular to Twitter. How does Donald Trump feel about this? He must be reasonably pleased then, wouldn't he be? I, well, honestly, I think so. It's I his mean, medium. He's, he's the king of Twitter. It's his yeah. medium. And he does it by, uh, quote-unquote, in Jack Dorsey's words, um, the CEO of Twitter, um, he does it by earning uh, that reach. Simon Kiss has been with us, professor of journalism, leadership, Wilfrid Laurier University. Simon, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for the time. I take, uh, enjoyed it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Peter McKay, a conservative, former conservative, uh, sort of stepped away. And, you know, many, uh, and we'll talk about this with with our next guest, uh, many said that the conservative leadership uh, bid wasn't really uh, strong this time out because many thought the the front runners, whether the Lisa Raitz, the uh, Peter McKay's, the Ronna Ambrose's, bailed thinking they, Justin, would just win two terms, no problem, hands down. Little did they know that he would shoot himself in the foot and and be his own demise in some ways. Uh, now people are, especially after Andrew Shear's uh, performance, some say good, some say not so good. Many are questioning his leadership. Peter McKay, obviously a former front runner for this job, uh, on stage. This was uh, in Washington, the Canadian Institute in Washington, and made comments in regard to. Uh, Andrew Scheer in his uh, campaign. Here's a bit of what Peter McKay had to say. Yeah, to use a good Canadian analogy, it was like having a breakaway on an open net and missing the net. Um, I'm going to be very honest with you. I think there was a number of issues that became very prevalent in this election that nobody other than the politicos wanted to talk about. People did not want to talk about women's reproductive rights. They didn't want to talk about revisiting the issue of same-sex marriage. And yet that was thrust onto the agenda. 
uh, and hung around Andrew Shear's neck like a, a stinking albatross, quite frankly. Uh, joining us now to talk about all of this, Peter Wollstonecroft is with us, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, uh, with an expertise in uh, politics and elections. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Good afternoon. Bonjour. Are you surprised that we're having this conversation, some questioning the leadership of Andrew Shear at this point? No, I'm not at all surprised that the issue is out there. Uh, I'm a little surprised that Peter McKay... Uh, how should I put this gently, was so upfront and open about it. Uh, usually, uh, you know, when the Conservative Party goes through these racking moments, one of the questions is, well, okay, we got some problems with the leader, but who else would be the leader? So he has, in effect, said, I am very much interested in being the leader. He had to have known saying such a statement like that would be a body blow. He had to know it was going to make headlines. Absolutely. There are no no accidents in politics, and he's... And he's not a novitiate in this. He's been in politics a long time, comes from a political family. Uh, he knew it would be covered, and, and his words were designed uh, to, to attract attention, very expressive. Everybody understands it. And uh, so he, he has sent a spear at Andrew Scheer. Is this him unofficially declaring that he is running? Uh, yes. And 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 uh, I, to me it, it is. If he's, if, he, if he's not interested, why would he do all of this? Uh, and and so I think the Conservative Party, and this has been much of its past, of course, um, it has an existentialist crisis before it. Uh, hmm. Mr. Shear comes from Saskatchewan. There's nothing wrong with that. I lived there for a long time. Um, he uh, he has very socially conservative views. And I, I think his life experiences set him aside from most of Canadians who live in urban areas. We're a very urbanized country, despite our enormous size. And the Conservatives did, obviously, very poorly in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and, and smaller aggregations. I point to Waterloo Region, which I know well. In 2010, it was all blue. Now it's all red. And if the Conservatives want to make gains, they have to do well in areas like this, in the area around where you are, uh, in the suburban areas around Toronto. And, and there was nothing in the messaging that was, was going to attract people. And when I, I've been reading a lot of commentary, and, and there's a lot of conservative-oriented people saying, well, this climate change issue is nonsense. So here, here's the, the issue. Most Canadians think it is an issue. And they don't think it's nonsense, and they want something done. So when the Conservatives basically say, we're going to help you with your home insulation problems, that's not addressing climate change. So most Canadians... Do Conservatives understand that the question isn't about, the debate isn't about climate change, it's about how to deal with it? Well, you would think so, but I just talked to a Tory worker this morning at breakfast, and I asked him to recount. I wasn't expecting this discussion with you today, so there you go. So... um, I asked him to recount his canvassing experience. He said it was awful because everywhere he went and he was with the candidate, people were wanted to talk about climate change and we had nothing to say. And these were young people, middle-aged people, older people. It was very much on people's minds. And the other parties had seized the issue. So that's what I meant by the existentialist crisis because where the conservatives are strong, there's less interest in climate change remediation. But where the conservatives are weak, there's a big interest in that issue. And, and so the Conservatives are going to have to come to grips with it and understand 
that they have to speak to Canadians in about this issue. And they and they, you know, they they had they had candidates who spoke about it but said no to them. It's like the Ontario Conservatives. Patrick Brown uh, was all in favor of the carbon tax, and he spoke to uh, mm-hmm. the mindset of most Ontarians. Uh, so is this less about Andrew Scheer and more about conservative policy? Both. Uh, I, I, I have been openly critical of Andrew Scheer for, for a long time. Uh, and the reason I am critical is, is that it's not in him to be alive before a camera. He's very limited in his ability to project his personality. And then when, and when he has opportunities to soar or even to be aspirational, he falls into a brittle partisanship. You know, when, when, when uh, Trudeau was really being hit hard over, over the brown-face, black-face business, uh, Andrew Scheer went after him in very partisan terms. And I, I think a leader of the country or one who wants to be the prime minister of the country could, could seize the opportunity to say, this is a time for all of us to be better and to understand that yeah. we have to under, uh, relate to a diverse and inclusive society. That's what we want, and we have to learn from what we've done in the past and move on and build a better country. But no, he went into a very personal attack on, on uh, Trudeau, and, uh, and he did that in the, in the first language, English language debate. It became a very bitter partisanship. Well, uh, this sounds a bit pretentious, but I know a lot of young people, and, and my observation is for students of mine and so on, they're not interested in the kind of uh, hard-cast partisanship that might have been true a, gener- a generation ago. Yeah. That doesn't wash through them at all. So when, he, when they hear this, they tune out. So uh, back to Peter McKay's statement, did, he, did Andrew Scheer miss the open net, or did he not get a pass? <laughs> oh, a hockey fan at the other end of the line, yes. Uh, yeah, he had the puck I'm just on, continuing with the analogy. Yeah, I know. I'm following <laughs> it. Yeah, he, he had the puck on, 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 uh, on his stick, and there was nobody around him. There was nobody slashing at him, and he had a chance to, to win, if not a majority, certainly a minority. Yeah. Uh, but he lost seats to the Atlantic Canada in terms of what they could reasonably expect. Uh, they, they had out opportunities in Quebec, but they were blown away. And so they had their 10 seats. No, in, in nine of those seats, they did very well. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, there was no growth there. Uh, they won a few seats in the Western Canada, a few seats here and there. But they, 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 they won the easy seats, to put it bluntly. They didn't win the really difficult seats, with the exception of one or two others. They won Kenora. Nobody thought they would win Kenora. Uh, and a couple of other seats, there were surprises. But there were always a few of those. But the overall message was, was dreadful in, in terms of... Uh, uh, Shear's ability to to build the base or the appeal of the Conservative Party. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't have, he wasn't better prepared for the questions that he would receive on uh, not marching in the Pride Parade and LBGTQ rights and such. Um, you, you know, even with his, because he was, I interviewed him here on this radio show and asked him point blank why he wouldn't, or why he didn't march in the in the Pride Parade. And he came out with the, you know, with the, the typical answer that they support all this and they support all that and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, just march, march in the dang parade. 
and you know what I don't think he conveyed and and you know if he doesn't want to then by all means you know don't march in the parade but you should be able to convey to the electorate why you don't and why he didn't come right out and say hey I'm a religious man here's my beliefs here's what I think you know I'm a practicing Catholic what have you and and here's what I believe and instead of saying that, because that would fly with pretty much any other religion, and, and yet he seemed to avoid it. He seemed to run from the question. Yeah, he, w- he was muffled on it. But I, I'd also say to him, you have to speak to all Canadians. Absolutely. You have to understand that there will be issues coming down the pike in the future involving uh, gay people, uh, same-sex marriage, parades, and so on. Will you be an advocate for people's rights, yeah. or are you going to subscribe to your religious precepts? Yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly happy that people have their religious precepts. However, don't try to be the prime minister of all Canadians yeah. if that's the way you're going to look at the world. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what John F. Kennedy said in 1960. He said, no, I'm not going to be answering to my religious beliefs. I'm going to be answering to the interests of the Americans. There's a great example right there. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, there's and, a big and, to-do about him and, being Catholic. And, yeah. You know what? One of my very devout Catholic friends was in my face about this this week, and I said, well, hold it. Uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was a very devout Catholic. Uh, Joe Clark is a very devout Catholic. Jean Chrétien is a very devout mm. Catholic. Justin Trudeau, as far as I know, is a very, very devout Catholic. But they separate their religious beliefs yeah. from what they see as their public purposes or what are, or what are the necessities in our society. Hmm. It seems now that, uh, and we're talking with Peter Wollstonecroft, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo. Yeah, I should say I'm, I'm retired now. Are you retired? Yeah. Well, well oh my goodness. I'm I 76. Should... Well, congratulations. <laughs> well, time to go on. <laughs> I know. All right, so... Um, uh, let's talk about the extreme world we live in. We, we seem to live in a world of divisive politics. Uh, we've seen seen the Liberal Party slowly move farther and farther to the left to, to, to ward off the NDP. Uh, we seem to see conservatives veer farther and farther to the right. Where Where's the center? What is the future of conservatism? Uh, where is the Bill Davis conservatism? Well, uh, yes, people are asking that question. And, people uh, were asking that when Ronna Ambrose was the interim leader of the Conservative Party way back when, and she promised a, giant, a, a kinder, gentler Conservative Party. This isn't a new discussion. No, but, you know, uh, it, let's turn to the United States. Uh, there was within the Republican Party a what they're called liberal Republicans who, who were not invested with evangelical beliefs or a, a sort of rigid political fundamentalism, they've almost disappeared uh, in the United States. Uh, and and uh, in the case of the United Kingdom, I've been following with, with, with great worry the number of MPs on either side of the Brexit issue who have been talking about how they've been accused of being traitors because they believe this or that. And, the, and I think it was very sad that uh, and I'm no supporter of Donald Trump, but he goes to a baseball game doing what presidents have to do, yeah. and people are booing him, which is not, not unknown, but they're also chanting, lock him up. Yeah. And we did have at least one, maybe two conservative rallies where people were, were uh, chanting, lock him up, in reference to Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. This is ugly politics, and when we uh, demonize our opponents, then it becomes very, very difficult to have a, com- a discussion and try to find some uh, amicable compromise. 
Well, very true. I mean, the prime minister just prior to the election, uh, somebody had asked him what he his biggest regret was over the first term, and that was unification, that he wasn't able to bring the party together, the, the country rather, together, and that it had become so divisive. And I'm thinking, my goodness, well, isn't it the leaders that are creating that divisiveness? Well, yes, they are. And they, and they set the agenda. They yeah. appear before the, 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 uh, the cameras, and, and their followers will pick up the clues and, and, and may even take more extremely that the message then was intended. But that is what is happening. And I, I think anybody who's listening to this will, will attest to American relatives or friends who, with whom it's very difficult to interact with if they support <laughs> Donald Trump yeah. because they have such a mind that they will not listen to any kind of at a point of view. Yeah. It, it, I was, it's interesting. Last year I was at a, I think it was a Christmas party, and ran into someone who, a Canadian who had spent the last 20 years in Alabama, and she said, I just don't talk about it anymore when I come well, up here. Well, I, I think that's <laughs> almost a, a universal observation. I've heard that so yeah. many times. In fact, I just had, I've had people... Or they weighed in very slowly. <laughs> Well, but I've had people tell me this fall that they're they're because they ordinarily regularly go down to the states for Christmas, and and they know what they're going to have to deal with, and they'd rather not. They'd rather yeah. they'd ra- they'd rather spend the winter in Sioux St. Marie. <laughs> exactly. Um, do conservatives realize that they have or are being painted as? Uh, moving too far to the right, do they realize if they pulled it back to the center, they might be more successful? Well, that's one of the existentialist questions. Uh, now, I mean, he did reject Matt, Max Bernier and his very right-wing approach. So Andrew Scheer won uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one was that he wasn't obviously ideological, but he has these socially conservative, social conservative views. Uh, and 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 so, but the Conservative Party is going to also have to address the fact that the West is frustrated and on the verge of being very angry, and we have a party in Quebec that wants to make Quebecers frustrated and very angry. So the national unity issue is back on the table, and I and I also think that that we're headed for a recession. As I follow the business channels mm-hmm. and read the news. Things are, are, are narrowing in terms of uh, prospects. I hear companies cutting back on employment, companies closing down, so on and so on and so on. So what, what will be the agenda in 2020? National unity and what are economic prospects? And I don't know if the Conservative Party with its present leadership has any idea what to talk about on, the, on those matters. And so I, I actually think, uh, to go back to the, the first question, the Conservative Party needs a new leader, and it needs to find somebody who can speak to those matters. Uh, it seems uh, because they don't, they let others paint the narrative of their party. It's as if it's a generation or two ago's Conservative Party. They haven't modernized. Well, as, I mean, as Conservative parties, uh, I think, generally speaking, I'd be careful here, because obviously in the case of the United States, they've been taken over by Donald Trump. But, you know, conservative people who are conservatives don't like change, they like tradition, and they like playing out the game they know rather than the game they do not know. So that's always a challenge for, for conservative parties. How do you adjust to a modern or changing society? Here we are in, in 2019, and, and we talk about pride parades and same-sex marriage and all those kinds of things. Well, let's, let's go back 20 years. How comfortably would we talk about that? Hmm. Uh, I watched a panel discussion on, on, on one of the TV channels earlier this year, and I was staggered by the fact 
that of the five panelists, four of them openly acknowledged that they were agnostic uh, yeah. you know, or atheists. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, well, you know, this wouldn't have happened 20 years ago where people would openly say, well, I, I've got no use for religion or I yeah. don't believe in this stuff. Uh, so a conservative party that would talk about traditional values and institutions and symbols, the importance of those things, um, has a problem because our society is changing so rapidly and our aspirations have changed enormously. Uh, will Andrew Scheer lead the party to the next election, or, uh, or and is Peter McKay the answer? What about Ron well, Ambrose? Uh, uh, I used to tell my students, don't, a- don't ask two questions at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, the, the second question is I have no idea. I think he will want to run. Uh, I'll be surprised if he doesn't. I'll be surprised if Andrew Scheer is the leader, because I think people are going to say, look, uh, you had all the, the party this time had all the resources necessary. It's so rich. Mm-hmm. It's got so much money. And there have been times in the, in the history of the Conservative Party where all they had was a donated office and one filing cabinet. They've got money, money, money. And, and because of the way they run their leadership elections and so on, they have organizations in most of the electoral districts of the country, which is an unusual statement for the Conservative Party. So they have the institutional support, and they have the money. They didn't have the leader Hmm. who spoke to people, particularly Canadians under the age of 35 or 40. Peter Wollstonecroft has been with us, retired professor, University Uh, of Waterloo, with an expertise in politics. Enjoy your retirement, Peter. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. (laughs) Take care. We'll chat again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you uh, obviously heard, and we heard uh, chatter about this during the election, although not that much, uh, in regard to Bill 21 and a values test for immigrants coming into Quebec, the Quebec government is moving forward with its values test on future newcomers. To talk more about all of this, what it means... Let's bring in Joel Sandaluck, partner at my man Sandaluck Kingwell LLP. They are immigration lawyers, and Joel is with us now. Joel, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So your thoughts on the value test uh, that they're using as part of Bill 21 and uh, immigration in Quebec? You know, it feels like it's mostly, uh, I mean, call it a political stunt, but the government in Quebec has a certain constituency that voted for it that wanted to make a point, and that's essentially what this test does. When you look at the questions that are being asked, they're the most basic, simple questions. I mean, the reality is no one is going to fail this test. Uh, there are questions about things like, are you allowed to discriminate against somebody based on their race? Or, uh, I mean, it, they're the most basic things imaginable. Uh, you know, the, the Quebec government has said that this is comparable to the test, the Canadian knowledge test required for Canadian citizenship, but it's even far more basic than that. Uh, This is really just an example, I think, in my mind at least, of the government of Quebec uh, trying to make a point. So is this supposed to actually weed out bad apples? I mean, is there somebody who's trying to to become a citizen of this country who will not prepare for such a thing and give the standard answer that the Quebec government is looking for? Well, you know, even if a person weren't to prepare and were to get questions wrong, they could retake the test. And then if they failed a second time, they could then take a course and retake the test a third time. Uh, this isn't really about, uh, you know, trying to weed people out, I don't think. What this is really about is a government expressing to its electorate that, uh, you know, they only want a certain kind of people in the province. 
and that when you listen to a lot of the public statements coming from the government of Quebec, they, you know, they talk about extremists, they talk about radicals, they talk about certain people, and you know, there's a lot of coded language being used here, uh, and that's, that's ultimately what's going on. What does uh, does this change anything? What will happen as a result from your business and, and how you do things? Where can you see this changing? It's hard to imagine anything changing all that much, mostly because nobody w- is likely to fail this test who's really interested in immigrating to Quebec. What's basically going to happen is this is going to affect only people who come to Ge- to Quebec under the Quebec Immigration Program as skilled workers. Uh, those individuals will be required to take this test in order to get their, collect, their Quebec selection certificate, and then they'll just sort of move on from there. In terms of changes, you know, the government of Quebec has already restricted the overall numbers of people entering the province under that program. That's a really far more significant uh, difference than adding, you know, basically a few short, easily answerable questions. So give us a, a, a bit of a rundown. Um, you know, my mother had to go through this back in the 40s, but, and I'm sure it's changed a lot since then. What does a new Canadian go through to get to this country? What, what sort of process is there uh, that, that a value test really wouldn't matter much to? Um, well, basically, you know, when it comes to immigrating to Canada, there's a lot of different processes to go through. There's a lot of just different means, whether it's being sponsored by a family member, uh, coming initially as a worker on a work permit, and then changing your status to get permanent status as a skilled worker, or also coming as an asylum seeker. Um, and then what happens is each person, as they become a permanent resident, have to remain here. They have to be physically present for three out of five years before they're eligible to even apply for citizenship. And then the citizenship test itself tests things more like knowledge of Canadian history, knowledge of the rights and responsibilities of a Canadian citizen. So, for example, you know, your right to work, your right to uh, leave and enter Canada anytime you wish, but your responsibility to do things like vote and respect the laws. Um, they tend to be very uh, straightforward questions. And a lot of the, an- a lot of the questions uh, that cause people trouble, it's not so much the questions themselves, it's really more a matter of English or French comprehension, at least in my experience, that's problematic for people. Wouldn't our laws already cover m- most of concerns that might be expressed with a values test? <laughs> they, basically, they basically cover every concern from a values test uh, perspective. I mean, the other thing you've got to remember is you're not actually being tested on whether you adopt these values. You're tested on whether you know what the values are. Right, yeah. I mean, the idea is, you know, you might... You know, frankly, you'd have a difficult time getting a lot of Canadians into one room and have them, you know, basically all agree on a set of values. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to talk about same-sex marriage, transgendered rights, access to abortion. Uh, you know, you can talk to, you know, to talk to the leader of the Conservative government. I don't agree with same-sex marriage, but, I'm not, but I consider the matter settled, and he'll follow the law. That's essentially how the law works. You don't have to accept every single element of the law or every single aspect of the law to respect it. And what we're talking about on these tests are not even really values. They're just laws that people are required to abide by anyway. Uh, a Canadian value... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Me? Go ahead. A Canadian value is something more like... Just imagine the value of borrowing... If I were to borrow your car, it's the value of returning it with a full tank of gas. Mm. Or if I were to come to your place for dinner, it's the value of bringing a bottle of wine or an appetizer. That's a value. That's a Canadian value. Mm. The idea that I shouldn't discriminate against somebody based on their race or religion isn't really a value so much as it's a law. And all laws are informed by values. That's true. 
But you really don't need to give someone a little questionnaire about this in order to determine whether they're suitable for immigration. It's, it's ridiculous. This is really not a new discussion in Quebec. We've certainly, you know, seen uh, uh, other activity which involves, you know, preserving their culture and, and th- their own nation, that sort of thing. Is that being used as a, uh, a vehicle for racism here, in your opinion? Well, you know, it's it's it's. We're just preserving our cul- our, cul- our, cul- our culture. We can do this. We're just pre- preserving our culture. We're a distinct society. I think you could definitely argue that there's an element of cover being given here. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people uh, have forgotten is that when she was running for leadership of the federal Conservative Party, Kelly Leach proposed a similar Canadian values yep. test for all immigrants, and it was denounced widely and accurately as being rooted in racism. Uh, and you could argue that Canada doesn't really have the same sort of history or drive of uh, preserving its culture that Quebec does. Uh, but when you, know, when you consider the test is the same, the policy behind it is the same, and the political sentiment behind it is the same, it's hard to, it's hard to say that this is really about preserving your culture. And there's, the other thing I guess you could say as well is when you look at the sample questions, they're not really Quebec values. They're not, they're not really values that are distinctly Quebecois yeah. or separate from Canadian values. Yeah. Why does Quebec get away with it and not the rest of Canada? Uh, I think Quebec gets away with it partly because of a willingness to use the notwithstanding clause when they do something that's unconstitutional. Um, and to be honest, you know, a lot of politics in, in Quebec, but also in Canada and the world generally, is very fractured right now. And a lot of people are, uh, have been driven to extremes that, you know, frankly, 10, 15 years ago uh, would have been very hard to imagine. I can't imagine somebody suggesting to me 10 years ago or 15 years ago that it's reasonable or appropriate or anything other than comical to propose some way of assessing somebody's personal values before you let them come to Canada. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think, you know, this is just maybe the new normal. Are you surprised at politicians during the past election not paying more attention to this or just, you know, hey, Quebec's a nation, they do what they want? I'm a little, I, I don't know if I'm surprised, I'm a little bit disappointed. You know, this is the sort of thing that, that Canadians and Quebecers really need to be calling out when they see it, uh, calling it what it is. You know, the idea of making this, uh, making this normal, making this uh, acceptable. Um, and I think Canadians see that, too. I think Canadians realize that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's, you know, I'm a Canadian, and I, I, I find this maddening to watch. I find it frustrating to watch and hard to explain, uh, you know, to my friends or to the, my clients. Uh, why people are doing this. What is, there's an interesting point, what is the feeling of those trying to immigrate into Canada? I mean, obviously, there's there's a vast country to choose from. Uh, obviously, the opportunity lies within the urban areas. I mean, that, that makes sense. But what when, when people are coming to you and asking you about this country, what are they saying? Do, do they prefer other pro, some provinces to others? And, and what is the feedback on Quebec? Well, generally, generally speaking, people prefer to immigrate to places where people who, are, um, who speak their language or are familiar with their food or whatever already are. And that's one of the reasons why people go to, tend to go to cities. If you were, say, from, for example, South Korea, you'd want to go to a city that has a Korean community already where you could buy groceries or go to restaurants or meet people who you could speak to in your own language. Um, so that, I mean, and that's perfectly normal. But the reality is that Canada has had a long time, uh, had an interest in settling less populated parts of the parts of the country, whether it was you know the rural west, the north, the parts of northern Quebec or Ontario, 
And what happens is the governments of those provinces and territories have created programs that are designed to draw immigrants to those, to those provinces. And eventually, ideally, those provinces will also have a, you know, immigrant populations and become more and more appealing to, to other people. What I hear about Quebec, to be honest, is nothing. I've never heard a single negative thing about the culture of Quebec, never heard a single negative thing about the language laws or anything. Um, the, what I've heard about Quebec has largely been that their immigration process tends to be a little bit different than Canada's, tends to be a little bit more open. And for somebody who naturally speaks French, perhaps they're from Haiti or the Congo or another French-speaking region, tends to be a little bit easier to get into. And for that reason, it's appealing. Once they're in Canada, of course, they have a constitutional right to live wherever they choose. And many of them stay in Quebec, but many of them also don't. I remember reading a stat that the majority that go into the province leave. Is that accurate? What does that say? Or does that just say, hey, it's a big land and people are looking to explore it? Um, I, I, I've heard that before as well. I'm not sure uh, how accurate it is or if it's still accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the truth is people come to Canada and sometimes people have a, a false start when they try to establish themselves. Mm-hmm. They try to get a job. They try to get a business. They don't, it doesn't work out. And they pursue opportunities other, other places. And one of the other realities is that for periods of time, certain parts of Canada, for example, northern Alberta, have been incredibly prosperous and would be incredibly appealing to somebody who was just in the country wanted to find work, wanted to find it easily and paying well. Um, you know, would I leave Montreal for that? I personally, being Canadian, maybe I wouldn't. But if I were just brand new in this country and I needed a foothold, I probably would. Where do you think Bill 21 is going? Many have said that it's a step backwards in time. Uh, I remember, you know, in Ontario when police officers, you know, earned the right to, to wear a turban. And, and and that seemed like it was decades ago, and, and now we've gone backwards here. At least they have in Quebec. What is the future of this bill? Where does this go? Do, could my, you could you see it being withdrawn eventually? Yeah, my I mean my hope is that this bill eventually goes to oblivion. Uh, the main reason is uh, you know the Charter of Rights and Freedoms has a sunset clause, a five year sunset clause, which requires each government to make a decision and a vote to renew uh, a portion of legislation that's been found to be in violation of the Charter. And what that means is five years from now, this government or a different government of Quebec will be forced to re-examine the issue. And, you know, my hope is that the more people consider this, the more they think about it, the more they come to experience people who've, who've been personally affected by legislation like this, the less appealing this type of legislation will be. And it gets harder and harder to justify with the passage of time. So my hope uh, my hope is that eventually this will pass, and this, we'll look back on this and kind of shrug. The same way, I'm, I'm from out west. I'm from I'm from Alberta, and I remember the controversy of M, of uh, RCMP officers wearing turbans. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal for a yeah. period of time in the '80s. Yeah. Nobody thinks about it now. Nobody even nobody even talks about it. Yeah. Do you think that it would be a big deal to reverse this in Quebec? Because you know, you think about it, people's lives are going to be altered by this. Yeah, it would be a big deal to reverse it. It would be, uh, you know, it would make a lot of people feel a lot more secure, a lot more welcome. Um, But, you know, what you really have to do, I think, to reverse it is to address the causes of this kind of legislation or address, you know, what it is in the Quebec electorate that made this kind of a policy palatable. Uh, you know, it should be in a healthy democracy and in an open and inclusive society, there should be zero appetite for this kind of legislation. And until you can figure out what it is that's driving the desire for it, I don't think you're ever going to address it because I think it'll just crop up in different forms and in different places and at different times. 
Are you concerned that this sort of behavior will spread as opposed to cooler heads prevailing? Um, you know, I'm always a little bit concerned about it. Or is it um, the opposite where this has now happened? It will draw attention, attention of the world, and perhaps political correctness will swing, you know, rear its head and, and, and change minds, change opinion here. You know, my my hope is that people will see the folly of this kind of of, of this kind of uh, legislation. I, you know, the truth is, I'm not a pollster. I really don't know how you know how uh, uh, the people of Canada kind of lean one way or the other. I found it a little bit gratifying that the People's Party ran a candidate in every riding and mm. lost in every riding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, but I don't know what that means for five years from now or ten years from now, to be honest. Um, you know, do you, I, I just, how do you see this in the short term, anyway, changing the emig- immigration landscape in Canada now that this these laws are in place? Well, I think what I think the I think what will happen. I think what was probably supposed to happen is that the government or is that the province of Quebec will feel less welcome and less open, uh, less open to uh, to other people who are coming from Canada. And you know, the news gets around; people are sensitive. And what will probably wind up happening is Quebec will have a smaller share of the best immigrants coming to Canada, mm. uh, largely because they've, indi- they've indicated a desire to, to not have them, uh, to, to basically only want to take on people who are like them already. And I understand they have one of the greatest labor shortages in the country in that respect. They need workers. They need workers desperately to do jobs that Quebecers don't want to do. Um, you know, what they're doing is they're trying to be... Uh, you know, they're trying to have it both ways. You know, my mother would tell them that beggars can't be choosers, and that's mm. precisely what they're trying to do. Joel Sandaluk has been with his partner, my man Sandaluk Kingwell, LLP. They are immigration lawyers. We are talking about Quebec's values test. Joel, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.